Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Just last month, rock and roll legend and lead singer for the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, turned 80 years old. And as everyone listening in already knows, Jagger no longer performs with his old bandmates and now lives in a retirement home in Boca Raton, Florida, where he plays shuffleboard and pinochle most days. Okay, actually, and just to be very clear, what I just told you isn't true at all, but with the one exception that Jagger did turn 80. And not only isn't he living in a retirement home, he's still working by writing new songs and planning a concert tour. I spotlight Jagger based on the assumption that everyone listening in knows him and his songs and probably has a really hard time reconciling his age with what he's still capable of doing in his life, including dancing and singing on stage for hours at a time. And while Jagger is an uncommon human specimen in most every possible way, one way he's like the rest of us is that he's not only living longer, he's remaining physically healthy and with all of his marbles intact. Longtime Harvard Business School professor Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who is also 80 years old and still teaching, by the way, once said that the baby boomer generation's impact will be on eliminating the term retirement and inventing a new stage of life, the new career arc. And it's her insight around the fact that as human lifespans keep increasing, more and more people will not only want to keep working well beyond the traditional retirement age of 65, they actually should. In his new book, The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society, Wharton Business School Management Professor and Assistant Dean Maro Guillen argues that the idea of a linear life of compartmentalized stages, i.e. birth to childhood to adulthood to retirement, is no longer appropriate, and that concepts like retirement prove to do more harm than good. So he's proposing an alternative, a post-generational workforce of perennials where older people are encouraged to work well into their 70s alongside their younger colleagues. Guillen rejects the idea that older people are too set in their ways to adapt and points to evidence showing that when given the opportunity, they can use their experience and maturity to add value to any business wise enough to hold on to them. He even cites BMW as already having five different generations of workers employed in their manufacturing plants. And BMW isn't doing this to be kind. They believe it's really wise management and good business. In his book, Guillen acknowledges that all of this will require a new mindset and enlightened leadership in our workplaces. Younger people must be shown the upsides of accepting older people at work, even while they themselves grapple with the idea of lifelong learning. And equally, older people need to accept that change, both technological and social, will be a constant in their lives. So this won't be easy, but the upside is that many more people will have the opportunity to lead lives that are personally rewarding and socially fulfilling. So how can all this work? Well, that's the core focus of this podcast. By the way, this is Guillen's second time as a guest. He joined us three years ago to discuss his Wall Street Journal bestseller, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Welcome back to the podcast, Meryl Guillen. Oh, thank you, Mark, so much for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you back. I think it's been like two and a half years since the last time we had a conversation and you have a new book. So let's set it up. Many of the world's greatest all-time rock stars like Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Bob Dylan, the uh, Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, 
and even Mick Jagger are all at least 80 years old and they're all still performing. And I should include Dionne Warwick, who's another singing legend, almost seem immortal. Like we've all grown up with these people and they're still performing and we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that they're at least 80. So start us off by explaining why soaring human longevity, as you call it, and evolving views on age are about to transform our workplaces. Yeah, so I think it's uh, no secret that we're living longer. But more importantly, Mark, we are living longer, more healthy years. So in other words, it's not just life expectancy that has expanded, but it's also the health span. And that completely changes the game, right? Because 30 or 40 years ago, people would live less healthy lives, and also they would live much shorter lives. And when that happens, essentially, then we have to rethink many of the assumptions that we've been making. For example, that we could just work for 30 years and then retire. And we also have to revisit, I think, the way in which we think when we're younger about uh, what we're going to study, what kind of occupation we want to have. Because the longer we live, the more likely it is that, for example, technological change may disrupt industries and may make certain occupations redundant. So if that's the occupation that you chose when you were uh, in your 20s, then you're in big trouble. So that's why all of this is so important. Well, let's talk about what you call the sequential model of life, our longstanding belief system that says human life has four successive chapters, and we move through them as if we're on like a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. We come into the world as children, we become teenagers, and we're adults, we're working, and then at age 65, we're automatically farmed out into retirement. So obviously you've set this up well, but explain why this model is useless any longer. Well, it has become obsolete, right? So the model came into being 120 years ago because we made in many countries in the world, including the US, two very important decisions. The first was to require everybody to attend school, so universal schooling. And that essentially created this distinction between childhood and teenagehood, right? And adult and early adulthood. And then we also launched state pensions and that uh, created a border between work life and retirement. And as a result of that, then you had these four stages in life. So when we're little, we play, then we study, then we work, and finally we retire. The problem is that the world is changing very fast. Technology is changing very quickly, and we live much longer than before. So the model used to work relatively well because it was predictable. And that's what companies at the time needed. They needed predictability. They needed to have a pool of labor. But now that you know we live in longer and there's technological change, and age cohorts, by the way, are becoming smaller and smaller because of the decline in fertility. Companies, you know, have no option but to start thinking about people in their 50s or 60s or 70s as potential workers. But more importantly, Mark, if I may add one thing, the model was thought for men. It was created for men. And it worked relatively well for men, but it didn't work for women because women need a little bit more flexibility in terms of their careers and everything. And, and so do men, right? I mean, men, if they really want to be involved in child rearing and so on and so forth, they also want a little bit more flexibility. So we have come to this point in history in which people are demanding a different arrangement, one that is more flexible, that enables them to move back and forth between learning and working, and also perhaps back and forth between working and retiring. And so the old model is just a, a straitjacket. It's too rigid for the time that we're living through now. Are we all on board with this? <laughs> so I have a couple things going through my mind. One is, since I read your book just this month, I read that Bain Consulting came out with research that showed that 150 million jobs will go to older workers in the next decade. Mm -hmm. So that's 25% of the entire workforce. Mm -hmm. And so what they punctuated, Maro, was 
Gen X and baby boomers are not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. But this is a global podcast, and I'm sure you saw this, but in France, they just raised the age of automatic pensions to what I think is like 62 years old. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. this was not a big leap. And so in your book, you say that people who are 60, if they're age 60 today, they can expect to live another 23 years. And yet you've got people who ostensibly could become the workers to fit this 150 million saying, hey, we want our pensions. So people who are 60 plus will just start there. Are they motivated to keep working? And what's going to happen to pensions and perhaps Social Security and those kinds of endowments? What's going to happen to those to create a disincentive to stop working? Well, look, I mean, the French have no reason to complain (laughs) because on average, they retire maybe six or seven years earlier than Americans, right, on average. But, you know, they were made the promise that they would be able to have a long retirement. And of course, the retirement is getting longer because for the longest time they were reducing their retirement age, but also because people were living longer. And it comes to a point where it's unsustainable. And that's why you see all of these protests and all these tensions, because, you know, the system cannot pay all of those benefits that were promised. Right. And so I think uh, the problem is more cultural, to tell you the truth, Mark. I think we've been told from since we were young that retirement is something that everybody should aspire to, that retirement is like the goal in life, right? And it's kind of sad, right? I mean, retirement is the goal in life. Why do we work? Why do we learn? I mean, we should try to find intrinsic satisfaction in work and in learning rather than just them being instruments so that we can retire at some point. And moreover, as you know, Mark, retirement has been oversold. People who go into retirement, they feel disconnected socially. They get bored and many of them want to go back to work, even if they don't need the money, because they want the social connection and they want to be busy with something. So I think we need to fundamentally revisit that. And that's what I propose in the book. Well, you know, you just mentioned something that triggered an entirely different conversation that I hope you don't mind going down this road with me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When you think about this idea that, you know, I'm living for Friday or metaphorically, I'm living for retirement. That's when my joy is going to come. That's when my fun's going to come. That's when my life's reward is going to come. Mm-hmm. That mindset, it makes me wonder whether organizations and specifically their workplace managers and leaders have an obligation to do more to create environments where people get joy and purpose and meaning and life satisfaction from their work. Well, absolutely. And companies that need to do that. And especially if they seek to hire, as you mentioned earlier, older workers. So they need to redesign jobs so that uh, people find intrinsic uh, motivation in them, as opposed to the jobs being an instrument so that they can have a life, they can earn money. And actually, that would be you know advantageous to the companies because there wouldn't be so much pressure on paying people higher salaries right, to attract them. So I think companies in particular have been going down the wrong path. Like thinking that all the worker cares about is extrinsic rewards such as wages or incentives as opposed to intrinsic rewards such as job satisfaction. So I think that this is also something that absolutely needs to change. So that is one of the cornerstones of this podcast specifically. And I'm wondering is in your broader role as a professor at Wharton and the vice dean of the executive program, are you seeing movement? 
Well, I think companies are, first of all, realizing that younger age cohorts are becoming smaller and smaller because of the decline in fertility. And then as a result of that, they need to change their ways. They need to change the way they see older workers. But I think it's also that a new generation of more enlightened managers, I think, is taking charge. They're now taking control of companies. They're becoming the top executives. And they are no longer making the assumption that jobs must be structured in a particular way. They're more willing to experiment. And they're more willing to try to look for solutions that help us overcome some of the problems that I pointed out earlier that stem from the rigidity of the system. So I think things are changing. That's what I detect. I just saw an article that said that the chief human resources officers in a lot of companies are changing. So the old guard is leaving, the new guard is coming in, if you will, and they're millennials or maybe even Gen X, but they've specifically called out millennials. So that means these are people who are, let's say, heading into their 40s. Mm -hmm. And what they implied was something that you just did, which is to say that they're going to be more enlightened. They're going to be more humane. They're going to be more caring. They're going to try to resurrect a culture where people feel valued and supported and they actually want to work there, not are repelled by how they're treated. So you use the word enlightened. What's making them more enlightened? Like, why do we have hope? Well, I think we have hope and they're different because I think they've gone through a number of crises in their lifetime that have forced them to re-examine some of the assumptions that we normally take for granted and also that they've had to adapt. So think about these uh, younger generations of managers now, let's say people in their 30s, 40s and so on. Well, they went through the um, dot-com bust, right? Then they went through the global financial crisis. And then, of course, the pandemic. Well, that's a lot of crisis to chew in just 20 years, right? And so they're more adaptable and they're more willing to re-examine the way in which we do things. So instead of taking them for granted, they're a little bit more critical. They have more of a critical view of them. So I think that's what's really driving that change. Thank you. Speaking of companies that are already on board with all of this, you mentioned BMW, and this actually really surprised me when I read this, that they are pioneering a multi-generational workforce. I think you said that there's actually five different generations working on their assembly lines and their manufacturing plants. Mm -hmm. And so you say they're working under one roof, collaborating and contributing their unique skills and perspectives. In a work environment that we might ordinarily assume older workers cannot keep up. So dive into BMW. Where's the wisdom coming from? What have they figured out? Do you see this happening in other industries soon? Are are they a one-off? Well, hopefully they're not just an isolated experience. And I think other companies will go down the same path. But BMW, as you know, is a company that was actually not in very good shape uh, some 25 years ago or so. And then they started to innovate, both in terms of product and in terms of how they make uh, their cars. And I think this is part of that trend, right? The company needed to reinvent itself because it wasn't doing great. And it's a company that, of course, relies so much more on the human element when it comes to making cars than other companies that perhaps use more automation and robotics. And they realize that older workers have certain positive characteristics, like they have more experience. And more importantly, they realize that when you have different people working together, That diversity, for example, in terms of age, is something that contributes to productivity and to creativity. This is something that has been found in many studies, that more diverse teams, including diverse by age, perform better. So I think they realized all of those things and they badly needed to innovate. They badly needed to change their ways because they were not doing great. 
So it's a, you know, I think a combination of things. I'm hoping that the example of BMW will inspire other companies, not just in automobiles, but across the economy, to also think about this multi-generational workplace. How familiar are you with them? In other words, have you actually seen this in action? Have you talked to management? About yeah, and, and also at other companies. So what happens essentially is, look, I mean, we are predisposed as human beings to believe that there's always friction or conflict between generations, right? Because we see this when children start growing, right? They become teenagers and they rebel against uh, their parents and so on and so forth. So we always make this assumption that mixing generations is a bad thing. But the moment you realize that diversity is good for performance and that age is just another dimension of diversity, then a whole you know, bunch of new opportunities comes up. And again, BMW didn't have an option really because Germany is a low fertility country, just as the US and the rest of Western Europe. And moreover, as you know, they rely a lot of immigration, but that's not enough. I mean, they realized that they also need to keep those older workers, they have experience, and that the trick was not to compartmentalize them and have them work separately, but rather to put them together in teams. Because once again, research indicates that diversity helps. Obviously, they're going on with this, so it's working. But what are the conflicts? What are the problems that have surfaced in doing this? that like our listeners can anticipate if they want to try this? Yeah, well, like everything else, you really have to manage things very, very carefully, right? I mean, this is obvious, right? Because the potential for conflict is always there. But if you essentially motivate people in the sense that, you know, you inform them, look, I mean, the results that we see are positive, and you try to introduce mechanisms, especially on the part of the team leaders, so that they play a constructive role, trying to move the team in the direction of collaboration as opposed to conflict, then you can really get a lot of uh, mileage out of these experiments, right? And that's what BMW started doing many years ago. And now they have moved to the point in which they have entire manufacturing plants, automobile assembly plants, where they're following this principle of having very diverse multi-generational teams. And so do workers of all generations begrudge this? Or have they grown into accepting it as just the normal part of how they operate? So people do accept it. And what we see increasingly in companies is something very peculiar, which is that more and more people report to a boss who is younger than they are. And this didn't used to be the case like 50 or 60 years ago, right? And also that mentorship goes in both directions. So you have older workers mentoring younger workers and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Again, again, in the past, that wasn't the case. But people are discovering that, you know, generations have um, things to learn from one another. And that uh, this idea that generations just have different worldviews and they cannot get along it's just plain wrong, but we've been assuming it for a very long time. That's a very good insight, and I totally agree with you. Nevertheless, we read about generations, they're always pitting one against another, and we get pigeonholes. So mm -hmm. baby boomers have a reputation, Gen Z has a reputation, and we all just accept that this is normal. Like that's, of course, anyone from that age group, that's what you can expect from them, and that's completely ridiculous. But you now see this categorization breaking down where the decade in which we're born will come to mean a lot less. We're going to sort of obliterate those generalizations. So tell us what you mean and really take us into this whole idea of what you mean by being a perennial. Well, so perennials are people who don't think and they don't act their age. And that's what we need these days, right? We need people who are flexible, who adapt, who, for example, don't hesitate if they're in their 50s, but they feel that they need to learn something new, that they're absolutely willing to do so, which was not the norm many years ago. 
And also, these are people who essentially believe that there is a need to adapt and to even, for example, switch careers as opposed to just uh, switch jobs. So it is that flexibility and that sense that the age doesn't determine who we are, that there are other things that are more important and that we have control even as we age over our lives, our working lives in particular. So that is the concept of the perennial that I'm advancing the book. Well, I think you have to start with an advocation for a mindset shift. I've seen people wear shirts that say, old men rule or old guys rule. And it strikes me as being sort of an affirmation Absolutely. that I'm an old guy and not necessarily old people wearing them. You know, they're 50. So, you know, when I've seen that in the past, I'm giving a example of this and how it plays out in our world. But, you know, people have an association. Oh, I turned 60, so I must be old. Or I am 65, and so I must quit. Well, exactly. And again, Mark, what has changed is that a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old today is in much better physical and mental shape than a person of the same age, let's say, 50 years ago. This has completely changed. And so those people now can have very active lifestyles. They can work or they can rest, but with a very active lifestyle, unlike what was the norm 50 years ago or so. So in other words, I think that we haven't yet adjusted from the point of view of our mental priorities, our mental assumptions to this new situation. And I think it's about time that we did. So to our listeners, Mauro, how would you encourage them to let's make an assumption that in the next 20 years, every single person here listening is going to be somewhere between 60 and 75 years old. I don't know if that's true, but let's just assume that it is. So it's close enough in their mind view that I will be approaching those age in the next 20 years. From a perennial person's mindset, how do you want them approaching those years? How do you want them thinking about what life will be like when they're 60, 70? Yeah. Well, I think the perennial mindset actually applies to people of all ages, also to people who are teenagers, because think about it. Now, with all of these changes, they can you know, make decisions at that point in their lives in a different way. They don't have to commit to just one career or one occupation because knowing that technological change may force them to switch careers later on. So I think it affects people of all ages. But specifically to your question, people in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, what I think they need to do is to try to resist the temptation of thinking that they're getting old. You know, being old or feeling old is a relative thing. And it's something that we build in our minds that doesn't necessarily reflect reality, right? And we've been told so many times by companies, by the media, that, hey, you turn 50, you turn 60, and for example, your professional opportunities are over. And that's simply not true. I mean, again, you mentioned the data on employment earlier. So I think we're getting to a point in which age is really declining in significance in terms of the kinds of decisions that people make. But again, we need companies to also change in that respect. I don't know about you, but when I turned 50, I got a card in the mail from the American Association of Retired People. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, welcome to the club. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, right? So who's going to talk to them? I mean, you turn 50 and they're telling you, hey, you better start winding down, right? Blue plate specials, yeah. dinner at 3.30. Are you seeing society change in that regard? Well, very slowly. And the problem is, as you just mentioned, these organizations, these companies, the AARP at, at the end of the day is an organization that has a long history. And once again, I don't think they have uh, changed their mindset. Although it is true that they're now also trying to promote policies that help integrate people in their 60s, 70s, 80s into the labor force. But we need a, a more radical mindset change 
in the sense of people completely forgetting about age and just trying to make the most of the individual experience at work, in their families, in terms of how they rest, how they entertain themselves. That is really the change that we need. It is a cultural change. I don't generally like the word radical, but I agree with you in this context completely. Well, radical in the sense of that changes the fundamentals. So radical in the sense of the roots. So not radical in the revolutionary sense, but rather something that changes the fundamentals of what we believe in. If you listen to this after we've recorded it when it's posted, I tell the story about my own father. He was very old. He had seven children and I wasn't born until he was in his 50s. So when he had a very big career, he was an executive vice president with General Electric and ran a huge division and was all over the world. And it was a fascinating, I mean, in his own words, it was an absolutely fantastic lifestyle. But he turned 65 and literally retired, sold the house, moved to California, played golf for the next 20 years until he died. He had no idea how long he was going to live, but that's what he wanted to do. And he just gave up working entirely. And that was the model for me. So I'm thinking as I'm going through my career, I guess, well, you know, I guess I end on my 65th birthday. And as you get older, you start to like, I don't want any part of that. So which one of these mindsets is more prevalent? Mine in the sense that I actually love what I'm doing and don't want to end it and I'll play golf occasionally or the people who want to literally stop and play golf and shuffleboard. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we should give people the choice, but it has to be an actual choice. Do you want to continue working or you want to just uh, retire? And then different people will make different decisions. But right now, the situation is more like you've got to retire at some point. Right. There's no alternative. But where do you see people leaning these days? So let's just say somebody who's 55. Well, I think Americans are very clearly sending us a message because you see about 42 percent of American retirees go back to work in some capacity. Mm. And among early retirees in the U.S., it's 51 percent who go back to work in some capacity, maybe not full time. So they're essentially telling us that, yes, they may retire, but then for whatever reasons or combination of reasons, they go back to work. Well, one of the reasons that you mentioned in the book that I want to make sure we talk about is connection. You actually say that people end up retiring. And I suppose that one reason why 51% of people who retire early go back at least part-time mm -hmm. is because they're like, what am I going to do now? Like, I'm all alone and I've got no connection and interaction with other people. How big of a problem is that? I think that's a huge problem. Loneliness is one of the biggest problems among retired people, especially if they lose their spouse. And, you know, when you're at work, you're in touch with other people. And if you stop working, then all of those social connections essentially disappear, right? And so I think, once again, retirement has been oversold. And the main reason, let me put it this way, why people retire, but then they unretire, they go back to working, is not because they need money. That is, for some people, a motivation. But it's mostly because they find themselves getting bored, isolated, and so on, because Again, I mean, 50 years ago, people would be in retirement on average 10 years. But now people are in retirement on average 30 years if they retire at the age that they tell us that we have to retire. You know, I think about companies like Google and Facebook. I mean, obviously, these are cutting edge companies in technology. And I don't think this has changed, even though the companies are getting older. Mm -hmm. You know, the median age of these companies is under 30. Yeah. So what's your advice to somebody who, let's just say they were working in that environment and they're thinking, I want to keep doing this in some kind. Two questions. 
Can you see a Google changing where they're going to embrace having older people working in their company? I'm mean, older, I mean somebody who's 50, 60, 70. And I suppose, I guess my other question is whether or not you think that managers are able to handle the generational differences. I think they're going to have no choice but to do that because there won't be enough young people to hire given the decline in fertility. But also because they will realize that other companies are taking advantage of older people and their experience and of that age diversity that I referred to in our work teams. And they will realize that they also need to do it. So I think Google, even Google, will change. You really do? Oh, absolutely. This is a general trend. And uh, sooner or later, I think will affect every company, even companies like Google, which I know relatively well because I teach a lot of their managers. And yes, you're right that they uh, are skewed towards younger people. But at some point, they will realize that in order to remain competitive, they will need to broaden their hiring practices. When you say at some point, what kind of a... Well, I would say the next 10 to 15 years because yeah, okay. these trends are reaching critical levels very, very soon. So let's go back to perennials. What advice do you have to people who are in their, let's just say, 40s? I'm being very arbitrary here, so I'm really speaking to everyone, but I'm trying to frame it up in a way that we can kind of conceptualize what life is like for somebody at that age. So somebody who's 40, who says, you know, I I don't really see myself, or even 50, I don't really see myself retiring. Mm -hmm. What's the perennial preparation? How do I keep myself viable? How do I keep myself relevant? so that I'm not the old guy who's a drag on the team, but I'm actually a highly productive member of a team? I think it's very straightforward. So it's two things. First is they need to become lifelong learners. This is essential, okay? And secondly, they need to be convinced that given that the world is changing, the only possible response to change is change itself. If you remain stable while the world is around you is changing, then you're going to be misaligned very, very quickly. So that's what I would say. So what are you telling your 28-year-old MBA students? I'm telling them that they should learn how to learn. I'm telling them that uh, technical knowledge is important, but in the future, social skills are going to be critical. Social skills are the ability to negotiate, to work in teams, the ability to communicate, emotional intelligence, all of these social skills. And I tell them that change is coming. So this morning I was teaching a group of high school students because we bring high school students here at the Wharton School as well. And I was telling them, look, guys, you need to be very flexible because all of these problems I've been telling you about won't affect me. I'll be retired or I'll be dead, but they're going to be affecting you big time and that's going to define your life. So you have to learn how to be adaptive and uh, flexible. What's their reaction? I think they were listening. I don't know whether they like the message or not, but I think I was telling them a big truth, right, about what's going on. Truth is good, right? <laughs> I'm a big believer in that. I think so, yeah, especially in this world that we live in. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I saw recently that I don't know if you saw, but Pew Research said they actually proclaimed mm -hmm. that they're no longer going to use generational labels in their research. Absolutely, yes. Pew is one of the best research organizations that we have in the United States. And quite frankly, this whole business about categorizing people into generations, this has been an American obsession. I mean, we started way back then when we were comparing the great uh, generation, the greatest generation who fought in World War II and uh, went through the Great Depression with baby boomers. And, you know, all of those characterizations were generalizations. They were cliches or stereotypes. And then we have continued to do that with every uh, group of people. And, you know, the boundaries between generations to begin with are arbitrary. But also, there's tremendous variation. I mean, you cannot say that millennials are all the same. I mean, there's tremendous variation within that group. 
But this generational thinking essentially tries to homogenize what, in fact, is actually very, very heterogeneous. Well, even they said that the average generation or the, most generations have a 15 to 18 year span. Mm-hmm. So somebody born 18 years before is still in the same generation, but had a totally different life experience. Absolutely. And then if you're only one year younger, then you belong to the following generation, right? Right, Uh, exactly. So that's why I was saying that the boundaries are completely arbitrary. Well, but it's interesting because there was a, a headline in an article yesterday, and the headline is, This is in the Business Insider, so you can look it up. It said, why do we love to hate other generations? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you that question. Well, because, again, I think this is something that has been fabricated by the media and by movies and by the culture. And essentially, this has been an exercise in exaggerating the differences and at the same time not recognizing the differences between generations, but not recognizing that there's tremendous variation within generations, but also that there's a lot of overlap or potential overlap. So, you know, the worst offenders in this respect, I think, has been marketers mm-hmm. because they've mm-hmm. been very lazy. Instead of trying to understand the individuals, they have essentially put them in little boxes called generations and then they attribute certain types of behavior to each of them. But of course, now, Mark, we have an advantage, which is that thanks to social media, thanks to digital platforms, we can get real time data from individuals as to their behavior. And this has changed marketing. This has changed so many things, right? So we're not as constrained as we were in the past in terms of doing research and getting to know human beings as individuals and what they do, because we can collect tremendous amounts of data with very little effort. I love that. One of the questions I was really looking forward to asking you is this one. You note in your book that 61% of workers age 45 say that they have experienced or observed age discrimination in the workplace. And so I want to drill down and ask you, do you believe that recruiters and hiring managers will specifically be able to get over the age bias that seems is so endemic in so many organizations? Obviously, you wouldn't have 61% of people saying they experienced it if it wasn't endemic. And will they have the desire to hire? And I don't mean like feeling forced into it because it's the only candidate I have, but will they have the desire? Will they understand conceptually why they would want a multi-generational workforce? Well, I think they will have to do that. And we need to demand as employees that they do that. Because otherwise, it's just going to be um, impossible to make progress, right? We need recruiters. We need headhunters. We need human resource managers. We need trainers to recognize people's individuality rather than categorizing them into generations. You mentioned diversity, and I just saw in the Wall Street Journal that some major, major companies are eliminating their DEI champions, these senior leaders in their organizations that suddenly have nothing to do because DEI is becoming less important. And I see this as being a very an essential part of DEI, which is recognizing that people of different ages are actually good when they work together, kind of the whole theme of this conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, I think we need more than just a change in mindset or culture, right? As I was saying earlier that we need organizations, we need companies to change. We need the government to change also. The government, as you know, also imposes a lot of rules and regulations on companies in terms of hiring and firing and so on and so forth. And they invariably also use age as a factor. How so? Well, because the government essentially, for example, has certain programs that are only to be used by people of a certain age 
or they also, in their own employment practices, they do like other employers. They also tend to prefer younger workers. So there's a rampant age discrimination. And I'm, I wasn't surprised when I first read the statistic that you mentioned that so many people in the United States have experienced age discrimination in the workplace. I have a big following on Twitter and we have interactions on this discussion and people have painfully exposed situations where they said, not only was I the most qualified candidate, but I was an internal candidate and people didn't want to talk to me because I was 50 plus. Yeah. So how do you unwind that? If you're talking to human resource managers and actually our audience is wide and broad, but if you can get into anyone at a level of the organization that can actually shift the thinking on this and broaden people's understanding of why this is essential, why it's important, why it's coming, and how to get on board early and actually lead it within their organizations, what would you say? Well, what I would say is that if you're not persuaded that this is the way to go, just think about it from the point of view of competition. Companies, organizations that don't try to make the most of the available labor force, for example, companies or organizations that in the past discriminated against women, right? They're not going to be able to do as well as companies who don't do that. And the same goes for age. And again, because of the demographic squeeze, the decline in fertility, this is going to become like really important for all sorts of companies because there's not enough young people now. Well, one of the complaints that I've heard from, we'll call them quote unquote, younger people Mm -hmm. is that their careers are being stymied. What I mean is their growth They're being able to be promoted into more senior, bigger responsibility roles, something like that. Career advancement, let's just call it. Mm -hmm. Because people who are of an older generation are putting in deeper roots than they imagined. And they almost are saying, like, you need to go. Like, (laughs) So what would you say to them? Well, that that is something from the past. Things are going to change very quickly. And that there's going to be a new dynamism in the economy. There's going to be more jobs being created. And that companies will realize that there's not enough young workers. And therefore, they will start welcoming, encouraging job applications from people in their 40s, in their 50s, or even in their 60s. As it is already happening, given the numbers, the statistics that you quoted earlier. When you say there's not enough young workers, what are you really saying? Are we really deficient in younger workers? Well, oh, absolutely, because, you know, there's fewer and fewer people in each age cohort because of the decline in fertility. And you know that there are possibly 200,000, 250,000 unfilled positions advertised in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. There is this labor shortage at all levels and for all different kinds of skills. And once again, this crunch in the same demographic crunch in the sense that you know, we have fewer 15-year-olds, we have fewer 20-year-olds than we used to have because of the decline in fertility. And that poses a big challenge. Well, I'm wondering with all of your breadth of experience, if you believe that companies are gonna lean more into hiring or retaining older workers, or if the possibility exists, will they lean into AI to replace as many positions as possible so they don't have to? Well, they will. There's no question about that. And they will what specifically? Yeah. The way AI changes the situation is that, well, up until now, only manual jobs were being replaced by machines through robotics. Mm-hmm. But now AI means that cognitive tasks, such as the ones that you do or that I do, can also be replaced by machines, right? 
But, you know, having said that, I actually argue that older people are going to benefit from AI because those listeners of yours who have tried, uh, for example, ChatGPT, they will know that ChatGPT is not very good at giving you the best answer at the beginning. You have to ask the machine follow-up questions, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to lead the program towards a better solution. And uh, that's exactly what older workers know how to do because they have the experience to actually provide clues as to what is the right approach to a problem and what might be the right uh, solution. So you're saying AI is going to be a net positive in the workforce? Especially for older workers, I'm convinced, yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of different things that I want to make sure that I give you the stage before we go and just ask, is there a question that I failed to ask you that we really should be discussing? Is there anything really important in the book that I neglected to bring up? Anything that you want our audience noodling? Yeah, I think the most important thing that we haven't talked about is that I didn't write this book to make successful people even more successful, right? I wrote this book thinking, okay, sure, I want to help successful people become even more successful. But I also want to help all of those people in the United States and other countries who took the wrong turn at some point in their lives. They missed a transition. They got delayed. And for them, this rigid sequential model didn't work that well. For example, high school dropouts. Normally, they find it very hard to have a good career. Or teenage mothers. Or people who were substance abusers. Or lastly, people who were in foster care. So altogether, we have 60 million people who were at some point in their lives in those situations. And it made it very difficult for them to recover from those. Like, for example, only 2% of teenage mothers graduate from college. So I also wrote the book for that. Because I think if we adopt a perennial mindset, and that we change things so that we are in a post-generation society and labor market, I think those people who now feel that they have been sidelined by the system will feel that they have more opportunities. So I think that's a topic that we didn't cover. I think that, you know, the perennial mindset is something that may help level the playing field. So you wrote the book to give hope, and I think that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I'm wondering if you will have believers so if I'm in that group of all those different setbacks that you described, yes, will I be encouraged to say, hey, I still have time. My life isn't over and I can have a second act. Oh, I'm convinced about that. I'm convinced that people will see the light, but we, we more importantly need leaders of organizations and companies to see the light on this issue because without their collaboration, it's going to be very, very hard. So one final question for you. Big, big, big picture. Mm-hmm. What do you believe leaders in general, workplace managers all over the world, what do they need to know? What's the, this is what you should be paying attention to answer. What are you telling people who are going through MBA programs, high school students coming in through your school, people that you're consulting with, anybody who's in a leadership role, if you can sort of look out into the future and say, I see the future and this is what you need to know and this is how you need to start thinking, what would that be? I would tell them, don't take assumptions from the past for granted. Challenge those assumptions and try to see that the way in which the world is changing, the economy, technology, we really need a different system because the one that we have now is too constraining, it's too rigid. Therefore, then, they need to really think that change is possible, but that the change will require fundamental transformations. So are you saying have the courage to lead that change? Absolutely. Have the courage to challenge old assumptions and to deliver a better world. We'll end it there. 
On behalf of my audience, Meryl, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you again. Oh, thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. Thank you again. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before we play our theme song to close out the show, which is Take the A-Train, performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra, by the way, I want to make a quick mention that we've just completed a pilot of our new Lead from the Heart training course. We had over two dozen companies participate and the collective feedback was really wonderful. In the coming weeks, I'll make the formal announcement here that we're ready to roll out the program to organizations all over the world, which is really a step-by-step guide that teaches managers how to lead from the heart with their teams. It's an affordable, super actionable 12 lesson online course that includes multimedia resources and group discussions with other participants. And I even do two videos to answer questions that participants have along the way. I am extremely proud of it. And we developed it in response to requests from listeners like you. As we say goodbye, I wanna thank my team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Goz. And great thanks go to you for listening. We produce the show, as you know, with love for you, and we hope you'll keep tuning in. And now I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you leave from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now.